What do we have coming up? We've got a third solar observation. Uh, one more since the last set due today. Um, you can turn that in if you have it on paper. You're going to turn it in after class is perfectly fine. You could submit the information on D2L as well before 6 o'clock tomorrow. And I'll take a look at those and should have them back for you Friday. Quiz 5 will be available on Friday covering chapters 11 and 12. We'll be just about done with 12 today if not completely done. Uh, that'll be available through the weekend. I'm trying an experiment with this one. There is, you're going to also see if you go into lesson 10 you'll also see a practice quiz for chapter 5 that you can go in and take as many times as you like. So you can actually practice a quiz. There's a set of random questions for each chapter and the practice quiz will take random questions for those. So you can take the quiz three different times. You can get completely different sets of questions every time. So it'll give you a chance to practice the material from there without counting in your grade. The practice quiz, you take it ten times if you want. It's not going to affect your grade whether you got a zero on it or a twelve on it. It's not going to make any difference. But it may help you when you actually go to take the quiz because you'll actually have seen a number of the questions. before. You might have seen some of the questions before. Depends. If you take it once, you may not see any of the questions. If you take it three or four times, it's up to you how much you want to go through and use that. So I'll take a look. If it looks like it's something students are actually using, I may do that for the future exam, for the future quizzes. Um, if nobody decides to use it, that's fine. <laughs> I, I won't make it. I won't make it. I won't use it again. But it's up there for you to take a look at. And that's available starting right now. I think I released it at 9 o'clock this morning. So it's available now. You can go in and take that quiz. And it's unlimited. If you want to take it, 10 times or 20 times. I don't think you need to take it that many times, but at least you'll get an idea of the questions to expect for the quiz itself. It's the same bank of questions that's used for both. So whatever questions you see in the practice quiz, you're, there's a chance that you'll see some of them again in the, in the regular quiz. But it's random. You might take it three times. You might still get a completely different set of questions. So It's up to you how much work you want to put into a 12-point quiz. If you want to take this practice quiz 50 times to make sure you see every single question. You know, you might be able to, but you might have spent, you know, three or four hours of work for what's a 12-point quiz. But see if that, I want to see if that helps. Um, then exam three coming up on Monday, so a week from, week from last class. And that will cover chapters 10 through 12. And then homework five we already turned in. I have homework six for you covering chapters 12 and 13 which will be due on the 10th of November. That'll give us time. We're almost done with 12 but that'll give us time to finish up chapter 13 as well. And here's a couple here. One, two, three. Here goes, sir. One, two. Okay. There you go. There you go. All right. So that's homework six. Again, it covers chapters twelve and thirteen, and twelve we're just we're just about done with. Uh, the other things I have to give out. Got a couple other assignments or assignments. Yeah, I've got two more, two three more assignments to hand out. So. Yuck! That's not fair. Uh, these are actually, well, this is extra credit assignments. Yay! And the other one is a kind of extra credit assignment. Kind of extra credit assignment. These ones are pure extra credit. So they're worth up to 25 points if you choose to do both. You, get 50, you, can, get 50, you can get up to 50 points depending on what you do. 
Uh, if you choose not to do them, it's not going to hurt you at all. Uh, this one is kind of extra credit in that it allows you to replace an exam grade, but it's not just, it's up to 50 points, but it's 50 points replacing your lowest exam grade. So if you do this, it, I drop one of your exams. So if you got a real low score on an exam, it's great. If your average score on the exam was, say, 40 points, the best it's going to help you with is 10 points. It's going to ra could raise a 40 to a 50. So it's up to you as to whether you want to do it. Again, as with the others, you know that one. And so again, if you've done, if you've had a real if you had a real bad exam, if you got like a 20 score someplace or along the line, this will drop your 20 and replace it with whatever score you get on this. It's not a guaranteed 50 points. It's not that you automatically get it. Uh, it's more of a creative type assignment. So if you're you can pick out some. Okay. I th I gave you I gave you this this one. I gave. Okay, he might have done one too. I usually give this out. Okay. Ah. Okay. All right. So there's a bunch of different things. I've given you suggestions there. Those aren't a limited list. You know, if you come up with something else creative that you want to do in astronomy that relates to, you know, anything we've done here. Uh, what I'm looking for though is the scientific contest. So a con contest. Content. It's not a contest. Uh, I'm looking for the scientific content. So I've had people who've done, you know, I've had art artists who want to, you know, do a watercolor painting. Which is great. But do something. You'll write me a paragraph to go with it telling me what you're drawing. So I'm looking for some scientific content on it. So if you're doing some kind of model, again, give me, give, write me a paragraph, you know, a, pa a double spaced page type amount of information on, on what you've done to tell me what, you've, what you were working on there. So most of them those you need something else. Some of them you don't really necessarily need any additional explanation. It really depends on what you're, what you're doing. So you're welcome to do uh, to do that if you like, again, I recommend you look at your exam grades. If you're doing fine, if you did fine on the exams, it's probably not worth your time if it's only going to raise you up five, ten points. If you haven't done well on the exams, well, it won't drop all of them. You can't do it four times and drop four exams. You can do it once and drop one exam. So that'll give you a chance to do, to do that. The other ones, these are pure extra credit. And if you have questions, if you have some idea on there, you're welcome to, you know, ask me about it after. These ones are pure extra credit. I try to give them to you now. They're not due till the end of the semester. That one was due December 1st. This is due December 3rd. Just so they're not all due at once. Yeah, it should say the first on it. And these are due the third. And our last day is the f our last day before the finals, the fifth. So waiting right down to the end. There's two assignments on here. Um, the first one on the front, if you didn't flip it over, should say something about historical astronomy. And there's a set of podcasts that I've created. If you subscribe to the photo of the day one or you did that early on in the semester, there's another set for historical astronomy that I've done that has about, goodness, it's close to 200 podcasts in it. They're about 10 minutes long. No, you don't have to listen to all of them. <laughs> 
you got to look at you got to look at the list. If you pull it pull it up on iTunes, pick out one that you find interesting. They go from ancient times, you know, talking about very ancient astronomers, ancient Egyptians and Greek astronomers, all the way up till I haven't quite gotten completely modern day, but I've gotten into a lot of the spacecraft from into the 80s and maybe into the 90s. About as far as I've gotten. So if you want something a little more recent, you can look up, you know, the Viking spacecraft that landed on Mars in the in the 1970s. I have a podcast on it. Each of them are about 10 minutes long, maybe eight, maybe 11 if they went a little bit longer. But I tried to keep them pretty close to 10 minutes about that. And then I'm looking for you to go ahead and show me that you listened to it by giving me some of the information back that I gave you, and then do some extra in research. And the points are broken down here, so you're going to find some things. You know, if you picked out a specific astronomer, you know, what did I not? What did I not talk about? I couldn't in ten minutes. I can't talk about anybody's life completely. I can't tell. Can't tell you everything Galileo did in ten minutes. And in fact, I think Galileo actually has two podcasts. I still can't tell you everything he did in twenty minutes. You can find a couple other things that I didn't talk about. And then I ask you to look for another astronomer, <laughs> spacecraft, something else that ties into that time frame, and give me some more information on somebody that I didn't cover. So, if you're doing something in, you know, Renaissance times, you know, Galileo might be one of the people that you talk about. Then you want to look for someone I didn't do. So don't don't do Kepler, who lived at the same time as Galileo, who I do talk about. See if you can research and find somebody else to talk about there. So there's plenty of other astronomers that I have not included. Um, I do ask you to just email me if you're going to do one and tell me who you selected. Um, just mainly because I don't want everybody doing the same one. So I'll let one or two people do, do each, do each. So if you, want, if you have a specific one you want, do it earlier. Most of the time I really rarely have a problem with that, really have a problem with it where everybody's requesting the same one or where everybody even necessarily chooses to do it. So that's up to 25 points and I've broken down the points on there. The back one, what I've tried to do is a this is for the Galileo scope. Since we made the Galileo scopes and I'm trying to find some good labs and work to do that, uh, this is actually a set of observations trying to get you to use the Galileo scopes and make some observations with it. There is on D2L as of this morning, I put up there an observing guide for the Galileo scopes. I would have printed it out but it's 29 pages and I wasn't going to print out that many copies not knowing how many students are actually going to even use it or try it. But it is up on D2L if you want to get a copy of it or just to read it online. And it is for 2014 and it goes through, gives you a little bit of tips and hints on using the Galileo scope, how to make observations. And it gives you the information as to you know, what objects are visible, you know, talks about observing the moon, observing the different planets, tells you when they're visible during 2014. So you can look at those. You can also use, I think I mentioned in the, in the Right up, use Starry Night. You know, if you want to look for, decide you want to look at Saturn, well, go look at, pull up Starry Night and find Saturn at a certain time of night and see if it's even up yet. Might not rise till two in the morning some some semesters. It might be up in the early evening. So you want to be able to use that. There's like five different objects to observe that I suggest, and up to five points each. That doesn't mean you have to do the whole thing. If you decide you only want to look at the moon, and uh, write me some information about the moon, make a sketch. There's actually in this packet, where is it, towards the end, there's actually an observing log sheet, which is what you'd kind of turn in. 
I do have copies of this. So if you're going to do it and you want some copies of this, I do have this. It's included in the packet if you just want to get it and print it out yourself. But I did print out copies of just this one. And it just asks you for the date and the time and the location where you were observing and where it was and then to draw a little sketch and then make note, just make a few notes. There's a little bit of space there for notes. So tell me what you were able to see in it. So again, you could do part of it if you only want to observe the moon. That's fine. If you want to try observing one of the planets, if you can find it, that's great. If you want to look at any of the other objects that I suggest, you can do those up to, it's up to 25 points for five different objects you can get. And that is due on the third, so you have a little bit of time to, to work on that. And I think that's it. So there is a copy of this. I put this whole thing up, on, this whole thing is up on D2L in, I put it in Lesson 10, the lesson we're currently working on. So you can actually get a copy of it there. I did not put the extra credit assignments again up there yet. But there's also the link to the practice quizzes in there, is in the same lesson as well. So you can take a look at those. If you have questions at any point, you know, feel free to ask me. And they're, again, they're optional. They're all extra credit. If you don't do any of those, it's not going to affect your grade. Won't, won't hurt your grade, won't help your grade if you just choose not to do them. You won't get the extra credit and when I drop one of your exams, this will be dropped. So you, get a, you don't do it, you get a zero on it. Do you then have five, technically have five exam grades, this one gets dropped and I add up your four exam grades. So it won't hurt you at all. Alright, so a bunch of extra papers there today. But let you get started, that gives you a little over a month to actually work on, on those assignments if you choose to do them. Any questions? Yes? Do baked goods go towards that project? Do baked goods go towards that project? It's been done. I'm a physicist, I use cake <laughs> and I stack the cake with layers to make an atom. Okay. Yeah. I had that, I've had. I did have students bring in you know, baked goods, that's perfectly. Perfectly fine. You may need to give me some kind of ex, like I said, you may need a paragraph explanation yeah, type thing with it. It's good. I'll give you these, ma'am. Okay. All right. Other questions on that? All right. Well, picture of the day for today is actually a cloud. Astronomer was going out looking for the solar eclipse from last week, trying to take uh, some pictures of that. And not having a lot of luck because there were a lot of clouds there. But as the clouds were starting to break, he actually got a very interesting picture of the cloud here and what we call an iridescent cloud. We have all the colors of the rainbow here. Now you've seen similar things like this if you get a, a puddle of water with a little bit of oil in it, you get a very similar thing. You get it breaks into a rainbow because of the way it bends light. Well, water, water vapor in the atmosphere can do the same thing. A little bit of water vapor, especially when all the particles are the same size, can do a very good job of bending the light and having all the different colors looking like they're coming from different locations and give you a cloud that instead of looking white, you know, plain white cloud that actually shimmers like all, with all the colors of the rainbow. So, astronomer here out in Colorado, you know, not able to see the not able to see the eclipse that he wanted to get pictures of. Actually, ended up getting probably a nicer picture, maybe a prettier picture than what he would have seen otherwise. The little trail out here is actually uh, an airplane. This is an airplane trail that happened to come through while he was taking the taking the images. So that's all this is. It has nothing to do with the 
rocket launch that didn't succeed, uh, what was it, two days ago or yesterday? Yeah, that was unsuccessful. So it's nothing to do with that. So it does look a little bit like that, but it has nothing, nothing to do with that. So interesting, different, an interesting and different cloud formation there. Questions? Alrighty, well, let's go ahead and see what we can finish up in chapter 12. We're almost done. We were right here last time. And we were looking at, the, we were talking, we talked about what's, how a star like the Sun goes through its life. This is for stars more massive than the Sun. And this was an example of one of these very massive stars getting very close to the end of its life. The unstable star deep down at the center here. And this is material not from the formation, but material that was part of the star that's being ejected out into space. So this star might have been 20, 30, 40 times as massive as the Sun. And it's losing material. It's sending a lot of that material out into space because it's so unstable. It pushes all that material outward. And this is the kind of star that we like to watch. It's the kind of star that we believe will go supernova at some point in the future. When? That's a real good question. Once a star gets to the stage of going supernova, it goes like that. It's gone. It takes only, you know, less than a day once it really gets to that stage. But it takes hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of years to get up to that stage. So even though we know it's maybe reaching the end of its life, what is this star doing at its core? It's finished burning hydrogen. Is it now burning, still burning helium? Is it burning carbon? Is it burning oxygen? Is it up to, you know, neon? Is it up to, you know, sil silicon, sulfur? How far up has it gotten up the periodic table? Once it gets up to iron, that's when we know it goes, it goes completely unstable and rips itself apart. Once it gets to iron, it only lasts about a day. So once it gets there, it, it's gone. It's pretty much gone. But to get there, it could take, you know, hundreds of years to get the stage before iron and thousands of years the one before that. We don't know. There's no way for us to look into the interior of that star and tell you exactly what point along the stage it is. So it will go supernova. Will it be next month? Maybe. Will it be a year from now or a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now or ten thousand years? Are all pretty much just as likely. So we're going to look at some of these more massive stars and see what happens to them. They go way beyond carbon. So not just getting up to carbon here. The sun gets, will get up to carbon in its core, element six. Starts off with all hydrogen. It works its way up to carbon. That's about as far as the sun can get. These more massive stars can get to oxygen, can burn neon, can burn up through silicon, sulfur, and all the way up to iron. Iron is the most stably bound element and you can't get any energy from it. So you can't fuse two iron atoms together and get anything. Uh, you can't get anything else from them. That's where the problems become. What this star does as it goes across the HR diagram, there's our main sequence. They don't really change. Remember the sun went up like this and then went over here and then back up again. It kind of jumped around. These stars over here pretty much start here and they pretty much go straight from left to right. 
So as they age, they're just all they're doing is becoming redder and redder. They're cooling off. So these stars are cooling and they're growing in size. Growing in size, not in mass. They're losing mass, they're throwing mass off, but they're growing in size. How big they actually are, their diameter is changing. So it stay, they stay just about as bright as they always were. They're getting cooler and cooler, but larger and larger. So they're going to stay almost the same brightness as they move across the HR diagram. As their temperature decreases, their luminosity stays, stays pretty much the same. These are the kind that will eventually be a supernova. Now we talked about a nova last time. A nova was the process when you had two stars. One was a dead core of a star, a white dwarf, and it collected material from its companion and then ignited that. A supernova is, quite, is a quite different process. There's actually two versions of a supernova, two ways that a supernova can occur. And we're going to talk about that in just a couple of slides here. But this is what happens to those stars more than about eight times the mass of the sun. And it's really the most massive of them, things that are 20 and 30 and 40 times the sun's mass that end up becoming a supernova. The sun will never get there. There's not enough material. We've already talked about what will happen to the sun. It'll expel its outer layers out into space, leave the core behind as a white dwarf. The outer layers will form a planetary nebula for a few thousand years and then eventually the sun will really just disappear. It'll slowly cool off over time. So a big difference at the end of the star's lives as compared to the beginning. So looking at what might happen to these stars, here's a table from your text that shows what will happen if we have an initial mass. What is the initial mass of the star? Somewhere in this range, what is, it going, to, what is going to be left behind? If we have a really, really tiny object, less than, much less, less than a tenth of the mass of the sun, it's going to form a brown dwarf star. It's going to be made of solid hydrogen, pretty much. That's it. Never got hot enough at the center, not enough material there to heat up the center enough to form, to have nuclear reactions go. No nuclear reactions, the hydrogen just sits there. It's pretty hot at first, but it'll slowly cool off. And that's what we call a brown dwarf or a failed star. If we have a little bit more massive star, up to about a quarter the mass of the sun, it's got enough energy to fuse that hydrogen to helium and it will eventually do that and it will become a helium white dwarf. Never gets hot enough, never gets hot enough to fuse the helium. So unlike the sun, these lower mass stars, they're just going to stay as helium. So they fused all their hydrogen to helium in their core, went through the end of their life stages, moved around, became a red giant and left behind a core that's pretty much solid helium. The vast majority of the stars here, from things about a quarter the mass of the sun to about eight times the mass of the sun, that covers a lot of stars. There's not a lot of more massive stars and we really don't see, hard to see these littler stars. These become a carbon oxygen white dwarf. They fuse helium into carbon and oxygen and stop there. Those stars just don't have enough material in them enough mass to create the temperatures that would go beyond this stage. So this is where our sun will go and where lots and lots of stars will go. Lots of the stars, anything in pretty much any of the mid-mass ranges. Only the very lightest stars and the very heaviest stars will not. You see the little asterisks here? We're really trying to guess 
on these. 8 to 12 solar masses, so really massive stars. You can actually form another white dwarf going up to neon and oxygen. So carbon and oxygen was here. We had a star like the sun will fuse most of it to carbon and a little bit to oxygen. The other one will fuse things all the way up to neon with a little bit of oxygen. It had a little bit more temperature. It was able to fuse a little bit heavier elements. And that's up to 8 to 12 solar masses. If we get over that, if we get over about 12, then we can get a supernova. But we don't know exactly what the number is. I can't tell you that it's exactly 12, or is it 13, or is it 11? Because really what we don't know very well is how much mass these stars lose while, uh, while it's on and after it leaves the main sequence. Sun is losing mass right now. It's sending a solar wind out into space that is losing material. How, what do these stars do? How much mass can they actually lose in their stellar winds when they're sending material out? Could they lose a couple solar masses? And we don't really know that very well. After they leave the main sequence, when they become giant stars, they can expel some of those outer layers. Again, it's not all at once. They can do it in stages. They might lose a solar mass here or half a solar mass there. And the star that starts out as 15 or 20 solar masses might be down to 12 to 15 by the time it's done as it's going through its life. So we don't really know the exact mass limit here. We got a pretty much a better idea at these lower ones. We can do better calculations there. And we know that they don't lose a whole lot of mass. Once we get up here, there's a lot of mass that can be lost and it makes a big difference in what will happen to that star. So what is a supernova? We saw a curve like this before. This is a light curve showing how bright an object is over time. When a supernova goes off, they become incredibly bright, the brightest objects uh, in the universe, pretty much, for a very short period of time. This is the time in days. So after that supernova occurs, it brightens very, very quickly. Within a couple days, it reaches its maximum, which is probably about a million times brighter than a nova was. Nova might have been, what, 10, 10 was about 100,000 times the brightness of the sun. Well, these may be like a million of these novae that we talked about last time. Incredibly bright. If you remember magnitude, absolute magnitudes over here, that would get up to a minus 20. The sun's magnitude in the sky is a negative 26. That means if this object, if one of these supernovae were to occur 10 parsecs away, wouldn't be quite as bright as the sun, but it would rival the sun in brightness. That's how much energy this single star would be putting out. For a short time, it would be about 100 times less bright than the sun. Well, 100 times light bright, less bright than the sun is still pretty darn bright. So it would be very bright. Many of these are actually visible during the day. If you get a supernova that goes off, you can see it during the day. It's bright enough to you know, overwhelm the, the sky the sky brightness. So you can see them during the day and brightest thing you'd see at night. The problem is we haven't had one occur in our galaxy in what is it now about 400, 400 and some years? A little longer than the time of Galileo. So there has not been a supernova in our galaxy since the telescope was developed. Last one was uh, probably there's Tycho's and Kepler's supernovae, two that occurred in the late 1500s. Uh, late 15, very early 1600s, shortly before Galileo developed the telescope. But since that time, there has not been one that's been visible in our galaxy. You'll see that there's two different types here. Type 1 
has one pattern to it, type 2 has another pattern. We're going to look at what these two different types are, but there's two different ways a supernova can occur. One I've been talking about, you know, the end of the life of a star, that's actually a type 2 supernova. Type 1 is a different type of supernova that we'll look at, look at shortly here. But they get incredibly bright. I mean, if a supernova were to go off in our galaxy now, you'd easily be able to go out at night and see that incredibly bright object, brighter than any of the stars, any of the planets. You know, in this case, they could rival the brightness you know, of the moon, of any of the very bright objects that we see in the sky. Now, unlike a nova, remember a nova could occur over and over again. A supernova is a one-off event. That's it. It's a star ripping itself apart. And unlike the nova where you build up hydrogen on the surface of the white dwarf and you could blow it up again and then collect more material and blow it up again, you can't do it here. There's really nothing left of the progenitor. That's the star before. There's nothing left. It's pretty much ripped apart. And we classify supernovae as two different types. I'm going to jump down. Type 2 is the death of a high mass star. So something 20, 30, 40 times the mass of the sun that explodes and rips itself apart. The type 1 supernova is a little bit different. The type 1 supernova is very similar to the process that forms a nova. If you recall that, we had a white dwarf star and it was collecting material from a companion. That white dwarf star has a limit to how massive it can be. If you put a little too much material on it, you get it too massive, it can actually rip rip itself apart. So there's two different types. They're both, both get incredibly bright. Both are tearing a star apart, but they're diff- completely different processes. One is a living star that is dying. It's gone through its life. It made iron in its core, and it's done. It's going to tear the, the, tear the star apart. The other one is a white dwarf star that got too massive and became unstable and ripped itself apart. Both are stars exploding, but they're quite different in the process by which they occur. And then what we're going to do over in the next couple slides, I'm going to sort of show you a little bit about each of these two to really talk about these two different, two different types of supernovae. Let's see. All right. So let's look at the carbon detonation. Let's look at type 1 first. Type 1 is that white dwarf star. So you've got a white dwarf star here. And you've got a more massive star, say a main sequence or a red giant star. And if the white if they're close enough, material can fall from the main sequence star and form a disk as it spirals in towards the white dwarf. We did this when we talked about a nova last time. It could do that. It would build up material on the surface of the white dwarf. So you'd build up material there. It would get hotter and hotter. Eventually you might get enough material there that with the uh, density and the gravitational field of the white dwarf, all of a sudden you're able to ignite nuclear reactions and that hydrogen starts to burn. Okay, It can do that. It can do it again. Right, you burn off all that hydrogen, expel it off into space, the white dwarf is still there. That was a nova. A supernova is a little bit different. When this becomes a supernova, the white dwarf has a mass limit of 
solar masses. That's as massive as a white dwarf can possibly be. White dwarf is held up by the electrons pushing against each other. So you compress the matter down so much that the electrons are pushing against each other, that holds it up. Eventually, you add a little bit more mass. Right? If you were at 1.39 solar masses, you're nice and stable. If you push it up a little bit more, all of a sudden it becomes unstable. So you keep adding a little bit of mass, a little bit of mass. If you push it over this limit, then that white dwarf, those electrons, can no longer hold up the star. It's like you get the little, get the card table out there, put the card table out, start putting books, stacking books on it. Right? You can put a bunch of books on it. Eventually, you're going to put one book too many, and the table's going to collapse. Well, eventually, it's going to get one bit of hydrogen from this main sequence or red giant star that pushes it from just under 1.4 to just over 1.4 solar masses. All of a sudden, the course that that white dwarf collapses, right? It broke. You broke through the barrier. It's all of a sudden going to start collapsing. And it collapses. It heats up. As it does that, you have this, that's ca- you have this uh, white dwarf that's made pretty much of all carbon. If you heat it up enough, as it starts to collapse, it's going to start carbon fusion. It's going to start burning carbon, not just at the core, but throughout the entire star all at once. So essentially, it's a large nuclear explosion. You have the nuclear reactions just rip that entire star apart when it starts to collapse. It starts to collapse down, heats up, all that carbon ignites, again, not just in the core, but through the entire star all at once, and rips that star apart. In this case, there's about nothing left behind. That star will completely tear itself apart, and there's going to be nothing nothing left. So there's not going to be any little, any little remnant left. It's gone. So the white dwarf star that was there is gone. We see evidence of this in some cases where a star has become a supernova because you see stars that are whipping out at high or unusual speeds. If all of a sudden you take this star away, gravitationally these two are orbiting around each other, this star just keeps going where it was going at the time. So if it was moving quickly in orbit around this star, it's now going to just head off through space at a very high speed. So we do see evidence that this has occurred in the past, and we see lots of type 1 supernovae. There's no difference in terms to which one, type 1 or type 2, is more common. They're both about the same. Now here, looking at the two, here's looking at it graphically. We don't want to look at all the words this time. This time we get to look at some pictures. Here's the binary system. So you've got two stars here. Smaller star and a bigger star. Bigger star goes through its life quicker. So it becomes a white dwarf at the center, expels a planetary nebula, and leaves a white dwarf behind. Then the smaller star goes through its life. Right? It's smaller mass. It's going to take a longer time. But eventually, you have a white dwarf here. Now this is going to become a red giant. As it becomes a red giant, its edge comes closer to the white dwarf, and the white dwarf starts gathering material. If that white dwarf happened to be right at that limit, if it's not near the limit at all, if it's not near the limit at all, it'll gain a little bit of mass and then it'll blow it off as a nova and then come back and do that again. If it's right at that limit, you push it over the limit, it's gone. It tears itself apart and rips everything, everything off there. Type 2 supernova, on the other hand, 
we have a normal star, starts off getting up to carbon in the core, that's a star like the sun. More massive stars, there'll be a layer of carbon that has burned. There'll be inner layers inside that of oxygen, of neon, of silicon, of sulfur, as we work our way up towards iron. Eventually you get to iron in the core. Once you form iron in the core, you can't do anything else. So we build up a core of iron, it's, it collapses, it's con still compressing down, and you're heating it up, eventually you'll get to the temperature where you can smash two iron atoms together. But there's no energy to be had anymore. Iron is as stably bound as you get, so if I make something bigger than, I than iron, that will take energy. If we take energy away, energy in the center of the sun is what? Heat. So we cool it off. So we start fusing that iron together, that starts to cool off the core. Cool it off, it collapses quicker and heats up more and more. So it becomes a runaway process where the star doesn't explode but implodes. Collapses down. Just because you're sucking all this energy out of the core, there's nothing to support it. All those layers come rushing in and then bounce. Right? You hit some kind of solid, they all compress together and then it bounces and explodes out and then rips, out the out, rips off the outer layers. So the whole inner part condenses down, rebounds out and that tears the rest of the outer star apart. So that shock wave from that explosion. Now in this case you will have something left behind. Subject of the next chapter, not a black hole, but usually something close, which we call a neutron star. A very, very compact core, something the mass of the sun, or maybe even a little bit more, but the size of a city, maybe only a few miles across. So, chapter 13, we talk about neutron stars and black holes, so we'll go over those in a little bit more detail. But this is the process by which it forms, is the end life of a very massive star. This explosion is where all the rest of the elements in the periodic table come from. So everything that isn't hydrogen or helium, pretty much, anything over iron is created there. So anything over an iron, you know, nickel, copper, gold, platinum, you know, everything else there, anything else that you know, makes up uh, part of your body was part, at some point in the distant past, was part of a supernova explosion. So you've, be, you've been there. Not as a whole, but you know, individually, any, any copper and zinc in your body had to have come from this explosion. Iron had to come, how did the iron get out? Well, the iron had to get out during this explosion. So the iron that makes up your blood was part of a supernova explosion many billions of years ago. So you actually know all about these. You were there, right? You know, in part, in parts you were there that eventually, and eventually that material goes out, becomes part of the interstellar medium, and then helps to form future stars. All right. So what do we see when one of these stars explodes? Well, here's an example of one that exploded nearly a thousand years ago. This is called the Crab Nebula. It's a supernova explosion from the year 1054. So an extremely bright star and a thousand years later, this is what we see. We see all this material spreading out into space from the star that exploded. We see deep down inside, as we zoom in here, there's actually a neutron star. Not a white dwarf, it got compacted even more than a white dwarf. So white dwarf, we pushed all the atoms so close that their electrons were essentially touching. The next step is we push all those electrons and we get all the space in between the electrons gone. 
So between the electron and the nucleus, essentially a neutron star is a gigantic atomic nucleus. You've crushed all the space out from within an atom. There's no space left between those. And that means you can take something the mass of the sun and compress it down to about six miles or so in size. Incredibly, all the matter is still there. All you're doing is crushing out the space. Makes you think of how much space there is you know, in us here, how much empty space there is in us. If we can take something the size of the sun and crush it down to that, you know, what could you do if you crushed all the empty space out of you? you know, you'd, be down, you'd be down to nothing. If we can get the sun down to six miles across, how are we gonna, what are we going to do with, the, with yourself? Or the earth would be even small, would be just as small. So this is just a remnant. If you recall, I showed you some planetary nebulae earlier. This is, this is a supernova. This looks a little bit more, to me at least, looks a little bit more violent. They looked a little more rounded and kind of, you know, think something gentle happened. This, you see all the filaments there. It looks like there was some kind of explosion that material was ripped out. And that's what it was. And we identified this from historical records. We could identify where this, const- where this explosion occurred happened to be in the constellation of Taurus. And we can then look back to judging by the, the old astronomical records, they logged its position very carefully and we can find today that this is the remnant that is at that location. Alright, well let me get a little bit of time to start star clusters. That's pretty much what happens to a supernova. We're going to come back and look a little bit more about that in the remnants because we've got to talk about neutron stars. And I haven't yet talked about black holes. Black holes is one other thing that, the rem- that a star can leave behind for the most massive stars. And we'll get to that comes up in chapter 13. But what we're going to look at here is a set of HR diagrams. Now you did a couple of these in lab, was it two weeks ago? Um, they show different ages. They're all for clusters, but the only thing we're changing is how old the cluster is. So this is at time zero, just as the cluster is forming. Define that to be a zero time. Notice that the cluster doesn't all form at one time. More massive stars, while they follow the same pattern to get to the main sequence, do it a lot faster. So these most massive stars reach the main sequence. These lower mass stars, stars like the sun maybe here, the much less massive stars, they're still working their way. They're going through those tracks, working their way down to the main sequence. So some stars have formed. We see the main sequence there. Others have not. Have not even completely formed yet. Fast forward about 10 million years. Okay, These most massive stars are going through their lives already. They've already used up their hydrogen. These stars are still trying to get to the main sequence. These ones are already done. They go through their fuel that quick. Even though they might be 10 and 20 and 30 times more massive than the sun, they're so bright that they're going through energy at a much faster rate than these smaller stars. So these stars are already leaving the main sequence. These stars are still working on getting, getting there. Those low mass stars are still have not even reached the main sequence yet. But you see that they're changing. They're going pretty much straight across. Those very first ones to form are the ones that are most likely to form a supernova explosion. So those first ones are the ones that are going to go supernova. We don't have to worry about that for any of these stars down here. They're never going to have enough mass to be able to explode. It's only those first few stars that form in a cluster that will ever become a, that will ever become a supernova. So we go time zero. All of the stars, none of the stars have left the main sequence yet. That's what we mean. The most massive stars are just getting there. 
And 10 million years later, we start to see some stars leaving while the rest are still approaching. Jump forward another factor of 10, 100 million years now. We still see, we're pretty much got all the stars there. These last few are still working their way down, uh, straggling their way down to the main sequence. But we've got several that are further out, that are heading, heading offward. So we're starting to see a few more. We're actually starting to see some red giants over here now as these stars have moved across. After a billion years, 10 times more, now we're starting to actually see a turnoff. You're starting to see a little bit more. You know, here it's just individual stars. There's only a few. You don't see a real good distinct turnoff. Now we start to see that there's stars all on the main sequence now. After a billion years, even those smallest stars have reached it. But now we can see that here they are on the main sequence and here we can actually watch them turning off. So you can actually see that turnoff point. And if you recall when we did the lab, that's what we used as our method of measuring the age. We could tell where that turnoff point was and depending on where that occurred on the main sequence, it could be very young if it's up here. It could be extremely old if it's way down here. So that age, where they're turning off the main sequence, tells us the age of the cluster. How old is that cluster? And we can measure that. Is it 10 million years old like the one on the previous page? Is it 100 million years old? Is it a billion years old? That's why we like to use star clusters to study this because the star clusters all formed at the same time and they all formed from a cloud of pretty much the same material. So we're eliminating a lot of the variables. Everything is pretty much the same about this star, everything was pretty much the same about this star cluster other than the mass. That's the only difference and the mass tells you where they fall along the main sequence and therefore we can look at stellar evolution through this method. If we look at an even older cluster, globular star cluster, you have to plot one of these. There's the, only these faint stars remain on the main sequence. Now we're up to 10 billion years later. So at 10 billion years, the sun is working its way up into the red giant branch. So the sun would be working its way up in here someplace. Stars less massive than the sun would still be on the main sequence, still burning hydrogen. All these stars that were up over here are gone. But you really start, because things slow down, the, more, the less mass of the star gets, the slower each stage goes. So we start to see a lot more stars in the red giant phase because these stars, they zipped over there and left in a very short period of time. These stars hang around for a much longer time. They come up to the red giant branch, go to the horizontal branch, go back up to the red giants and supergiants, and then eventually we start to see now the white dwarfs have begun to form. So we're actually starting to see those that we know no more supernovae are occurring, at least type 2 supernovae, because we're starting to form white dwarfs. The stars that are finishing up their lives are much, much too low mass in to, form, uh, to form a supernova. So we get to see all the different parts, all the different parts that we looked at when we looked at the evolution of the sun. That's what we're seeing here. This is a way that we can study that and test our models. We can make a model cluster on the computer, let all those stars evolve, right? We can't sit there and wait 10 billion years for it to happen, but we can make predictions as to what it might look like, and then we can look at a globular cluster that we've known to be 10 billion years old or 12 billion years old and see well, how well our models match up. And that's one of the ways we can study and compare those. This is a very, very young cluster looking at lots and lots of stars of it. 
You've got a main sequence here. Very young here. This is hitting the main sequence and here we have a lot of stars that are still working their way down. These are still working their way down to the main sequence. So here we're on the main sequence. Here we haven't reached it yet. However, we do have red giant stars off here. We can sort of estimate the turnoff, but it's not very easy to get. As this goes almost straight up, it's very hard to tell exactly where that turnoff is. But it's estimated to be only about 10 million years old. So even at that very short time, astronomically speaking, we've got red giant stars, meaning that stars have already used up their fuel. Uh, this is a nice double cluster, nicely visible one. Uh, in the evening, it's actually in the north, it's the constellation of Perseus, and it's actually two clusters. There's a cluster, a grouping right here, and another right next, right next to it. So it's a really, really young cluster. And we can see a big difference between something like that and a much older, a little bit older cluster. That's about 600 million years old. And that's the Hyades in Taurus. Where now we still see a turnoff here, we still see some red giants. But the upper part of the main sequence is gone. All those stars are gone and we're starting to see the white dwarfs form. So it's a little bit older cluster. After 600 million years, if a star is going to go supernova in a cluster, it's going to do it very early on in those first couple of million years. It's only going to be those most massive stars. And I'm just going to put the last one up here and then I'll come back and uh, skim over these again on Friday. This is about the end of the chapter in any case. Uh, this is for a globular cluster. This is what we plotted a couple weeks ago. Red giants here. You have the subgiants, red giants, horizontal branch, asymptotic giant branch up into the supergiants, and lots and lots of white dwarfs then. A lot older than either of the previous two. Previous two. So I'm going to come back. I'll show you these last three. I'll go over them briefly again on Friday. And then I think I have one more, one more slide after this to, to show. So, questions? Nope. Alrighty. Have a good day. I will see everyone on Friday. <laughs>